Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. I'm a psychotherapist with an interest not only in the individual psyche, but also that of the collective. The malaise of civilization has become increasingly my focus in these podcasts. The evolving multidimensional crises of the 21st century are my backdrop. The ten horsemen of the apocalypse are the drivers of my argument. These are the crises of the economic, political, climatic, military, technological, spiritual, the clash of ideas, the pandemic, financial and social. We now have an unusual structure for each episode. Instead of the previous single theme, there are now three interrelated but distinct ones. We begin by some update of the world crisis. This is followed by the mini-series on capitalism, this will be four or five episodes. Today we are on the second part of this. We examine briefly the achievements of capitalism. And finally we turn to some of the poems and commentaries on the pilgrim's quest from the sower and the seed, which is a metaphor for the spiritual journey that is available for everyone to take, regardless of the external crisis. Part 1. Like all virus, COVID-19 feeds on the weakness of the host. Currently, the United States and Latin America are the epicentres of the pandemic. Only 4% of the world's population lives in the United States, but it has, in mid-July 2020, 14%, of the global deaths from the virus. The weakness of the host, in the case of the United States, is its leadership. The dangers of having incompetent leaders is never greater than in a serious crisis. Latin America has only 11% of the world's population, but it has, in mid-July 2020, 48% of the world's deaths. Latin America, in its largest economies, Brazil and Mexico, has also been afflicted by comparable leadership incompetence, but other countries who have taken correct policies and have better leadership have also suffered badly since the social, housing, poverty and labour market conditions are a breeding ground for the virus. Secondly, I now wish to comment on China and the ending of one of the longest and most powerful booms in the history of capitalism. Although China had a mere 1.6 decline in its economy in the first half of 2020, it is under great pressure and this is the first contraction since it began its immense transition away from the classic communist planned economy in the 1970s. Compared to the large decline of many other economies, a minus 1.6% figure appears minuscule, but this figure is not the result of a natural bounce back, but indicates the huge and problematic effort from an interventionist state. This is a purely government-engineered stimulus. Private investment in the first six months of 2020 in China fell by 7.3%, while investments in the huge and inefficient 130,000 state-owned enterprises rose 2.1%. However, even before the Wuhan virus escaped and the subsequent lockdown, the economy was struggling with massive overinvestment, particularly in redundant real estate projects, mounting bad debt, 
chronic underconsumption and the growing dominance of inefficient, sclerotic, wasteful state enterprises notorious for their corruption. The post-2008 credit expansion was the fastest and biggest in history and had increased to record highs in early 2020. The shadow banking system in China, feeding the boom, especially in property, real estate and infrastructure, has expanded enormously over recent decades. Thus, real estate investment increased 1.9% in the first half of 2020, even as overall investment declined 3.1%. State stimulus often delays, but exasperates the problems later. Since the government allows a surge of cheap and easy credit, to flow from the shadow banking system to the economy. There is a further malinvestment process and the creation of zombie firms that would not survive under normal conditions, but can only be kept alive by continual injections of easy money. An avalanche of bad loans and defaults follows such a process, triggering banking collapses. The government will step in again, supporting the failing banks and thus create a zombie financial structure. In other words, the same process as in many Western economies. Zombies are the walking dead, i.e. those firms that would have naturally been cleared out by the gales of creative destruction, as Schumpeter termed them, but have artificially been kept alive. China has not yet managed to generate an internal consumption-led economy. Whereas many developed countries have around 70% of their economies occupied by household consumption, China has only 40%. The reason is, I believe, that should wages rise to levels comparable with the West, thus generating an economy more based on internal demand and consumption, then it would lose its cost competitiveness and the famous export-led boom would come to a halt. Thus, the lack of internal consumption in China is made up by the combination of exports, that is, the external demand from abroad, or by government generating demand within the country. The pandemic in China, as everywhere else, contracted household consumption, with retail sales, for example, reduced by 11.4% in the first half of 2020. Since exports have fallen, given the world economic crisis, then it is this government component which has filled the gap. And this is the problem. China has revived the old strategy of debt fueled state-dominated investment. According to observant analysts, this is an economy on the edge of unknown territory. Modern China is terrified of an economic collapse. But this is very well-known territory elsewhere, described so accurately by Chaim Minsky in the 1990s and is precisely the scenario that is being played out in other developed economies. This is as follows. An expansion of the economy takes place due to natural economic factors, such as new markets, new transport links, or new means of transport, or inventions and technological possibilities. There is a natural movement of investment capital labour to these areas. No bureaucracy is required. The invisible hand does the work for free. Credit and banking finance are provided for the expanding industry, sector, region or market. 
banks can almost always create new credit by one means or another in the boom, but governments encourage this process by loosening credit conditions. The boom intensifies. Stock markets orientate around the boom stocks and this boom turns to mania. Prices of land, materials and labour become disconnected from reality. Share prices, as is often the case, are misguided and dangerously set for a crash. Criminality and corruption are encouraged. A localised disturbance shakes the market suddenly and there is sudden panic and exit. Shares collapse, bankruptcies take place, credit conditions tighten and the slump part of the cycle and the bear market begin. The emerging Chinese economic contraction has implications for the world economy. In the decade after the Great Recession, following the 2008 financial crisis, it was the enormous Chinese investment and demand that propped up the world economy and led to its recovery. China accounted for over 50% of capital investments in developed economies and over 60% global new money that was created in this cycle was done in China and then flowed out to the rest of the world in investments, loans, grants, purchases of land, investment in stock exchanges, buying up of foreign real estate and property, raw materials and the like. However, unprofitable investments and huge debts have now ended the possibility of China financing and stimulating the world out of the present impasse. China's contraction will have great impact on the rest of the world. We now pass to part two, a continuation of the mini-series on capitalism. Here we look at the sources of the achievements of capitalism. Capitalism is the most creative and most destructive economic system in mankind's history. We examine the source of its creativity. Firstly, its economic mechanisms can be highly efficient and generate enormous wealth. This is a result of a. the extensive use of a price mechanism determined by supply and demand, forming an automatic distribution system for investment, production and consumption. This is Adam Smith's invisible hand. b. a competitive system that deeply influences price, quality and new product creation. c a circulatory reinvestment process whereby technologies and labour are harnessed to create products sold for profit and reinvested back in production, the key to the growth process. Other systems have generated surplus, but the competitive process of capitalism obliges firms to reinvest or they fail in the competitive race. Secondly, it's dynamism. Capitalism produces intense waves of technological transformation, typically beginning with a series of central inventions and diversifying into numerous innovations, providing new profit opportunities. Employment, products and firms, these have revolutionary impact. Secondly, social transformation of many types. For example, urbanisation explodes with capitalism since cities are economic engines possessing tremendous advantages of cost savings and productivity, propelling economic activity, generating jobs and profit opportunities. Thirdly, 
Global expansion. Capitalism seeks trade, raw materials, labour and markets across the globe. It developed impulses of transformation around the earth and became the world's dominant economic system. Capital seeks global expression and brings the whole world into its embrace. Financial globalisation accompanies or rapidly follows the spread of trade to all corners of the globe. Thirdly, its relationship to the state. Although the state was meant to be minimalist in the new capitalist system, in fact, its power has grown and the amount of social capital, that is infrastructure, utilities, education, health and so on, is in its hands and has increased enormously. The state did not decrease its power, but changed its support for the emerging capitalism instead of the system that historically preceded it, mercantilism and before that feudalism. The strength of capitalism lay in its power to capture the state. Fourthly, its flexibility. The different varieties of capitalism across the globe, from the United States, which had traditionally been free market up to the present crisis, where it's become substantially socialised, to Sweden, for example, with its social democratic model, as well as its ability to combine with other systems, for example, communism in China, form of state capitalism. These varieties of capitalism now dominate the whole globe. Even within the same country, there is considerable flexibility of capitalism across time. For example, from the Keynesian semi-socialist UK of the 1960s to the free enterprise system of the 1990s. In addition, United States and UK policy responses to their largest crises, for example 1929, 2008 and 2020, show adaptation and policy change. In brief, capitalism evolves and changes very quickly, and its relationship to the state has proved flexible, especially in times of serious crisis. Fifthly, the psychology of capitalism is based upon self-interest. Capitalism has the immense advantage that it taps into mankind's most basic psychology. Other economic formations, such as feudalism or slavery, are based on psychological principles that are unproductive. The psychology of private gain is built into human nature with its unconscious infantile longing, hunger, need and greed. The second aspect of its psychology is private wealth and property. The retention of the wealth in private hands generated by this system is vital. Otherwise, the incentive to engage in productive efforts is pointless. Capitalism, therefore, gives the assurance that this wealth is protected in private hands. Thirdly, with respect to its psychology, ideological justification. Capitalism, despite imperfections, claims equilibrium at its centre, a market mechanism that works efficiently with minimum state interference when laws are obeyed. And the state provides a platform, infrastructure, education, police, defence, etc., for it to function. It justifies itself by providing greater wealth for a greater number of people than any other system. And it equates wealth with happiness. In addition, it provides incomparably more freedoms, including political and individual, than any other system. And fourthly, 
a change in consciousness. Capitalism requires a change in mentality, attitude and belief, so as to emerge historically. And in turn, it has profoundly changed human consciousness and continues to do so. This ability to change consciousness is crucial to its success. In our next episode, we will examine the crises of capitalism. In other words, its weakness and vulnerabilities. We now move to part three. No matter what the crisis in the external world, the spiritual search, the quest, is always available. We focus on select commentaries and poems of the sower and the seed. The beautiful parable of the sower is from the New Testament and has fired the spiritual imagination for thousands of years. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places. They immediately sprang up, because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because there was no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's from the New Testament, Matthew 13. While Christ refers to the spiritual message and how it is received, in the pages of the book, The Sower and the Seed, the image of the sower is used with reference to the cosmos itself and the belief that life and intelligence have been seeded into it, that humans are not the result of accident but are a natural evolution from this cosmos. Consciousness is an integral evolution within nature. It is a belief in imminence that the evolution of the cosmos has spirit and mind destined to evolve within it. That we are an expression of this evolving destiny of the universe. A child who realises she is wanted and loved feels totally different from one who feels her existence is an accident. That the universe, or at least the earth, is the result of something divine has been the abiding conviction of all the world's religions and mystical thinkers. In an age that has discovered evolution, the theory of imminence suggests that spirit and matter are mixed in evolution from the beginning. A more radical view found in Platonic and Pythagorean doctrines, especially those of Plotinus, is that spirit precedes matter. This is the case with almost all religions. The Judaic and Christian religions, for example, believe that God created the earth, which means that spirit preceded matter. In Hindu mythologies, one also finds many references to the universe being a manifestation of a universal intelligence. This is a reversal of the assumptions of modern science that consciousness arises from matter. It is sometimes the case in the psychotherapy or spiritual journey that one symbolically breaks down, losing one's way. One does not know. The old certainties disappear. This may be the precondition for the emergence of new thinking energy and inspiration from a deeper layer of the psyche. One admits that the ego is not in charge of the ship, so too in our exploration of the cosmos. The findings of modern physics and cosmology are utterly astounding. 
we have knowledge that was impossible to imagine only a few decades ago. Mankind pushes on for ultimate knowledge, the theory of everything, the unified theory, the ultimate particles. But this will evade us, and we will reach a place in our knowledge of the cosmos when we say, once again, that we know so, so little, and that we will have exhausted, at this stage, our struggle for knowledge. That this lens of our mind can only go so far and be defeated. At that point, the scientific paradigm will reconfigure and a new vision emerge. A new mythology that includes consciousness, ourselves, as a central part of evolution and the cosmos. To remind you of the story of the pilgrim, he has left home and security, experienced loss of the captain of the ship, his heroic eager figure, fallen into depression had to face himself, but at the darkest point found a light that lifted him so he could ascend the mountain with a number of questions burning inside of him. The nature of the cosmos, the soul, human destiny and the wholeness of the individual. This is his first encounter with the voice of transcendence that gives him some answer to his anguished searching. Illumination experiences are a transmission of the light according to the light that lies within oneself. My formulation of this poem began one evening a little time after my actual mountain experience of the light and I felt the poem begin to come like contractions, pushing out of me, demanding my cooperation, that I formulate the intense feeling of each stanza into words. It seemed that I had no idea where the words would lead me. They appeared to have a will of their own, and my job was to use everything I had to help it emerge. It was like giving birth, and there was an immense and wonderful relief after each stanza, and especially when it was all out. It happened one evening when I was alone on the seafront watching the sky over the sea a sight I had seen thousands of times before, but which now was awesome and humbling. As the sun set, the clouds seemed to be expressive of some imminence, and the dark sky appeared with the incomparable view of the planets, and then stars, and then Milky Way. I felt extraordinarily bound up with this, and part of it, as if I were it, for this brief eternal period, and that is when this poem emerged. The poem begins by locating the pilgrim in the narrative as he ascends the mountain to find an answer to his questions. He is then given a series of answers. The sower and the seed image was the one that crystallised in the starry night sky, since it came to me with overwhelming force that subsequently I've never been able to deny, that there is a vast incomprehensible intelligence that manifests and evolves the universe and every part of it, from the great galaxies to the tiniest flower, which are all saturated in this miracle, and that this immensity was trying to express itself through me, that this was, moreover, the destiny 
of human consciousness to feel and express this realization. The Soa then is a symbol of the vast intelligence, force, divine presence. The seed is creation itself. Actually, in my experience that night, and also in the second and third stanzas of the poem, the seeds are the galaxies, stars and planets of the universe, some of which have died, some of which are barren, some of which had life, which subsequently disappeared, and some of which have life, which has multiplied. Moreover, this life that is seeded in the universe is destined to bring forth consciousness. So spirit and matter are mixed from the beginning, though we will never know how this is done. Subsequent stanzas elaborate the creative, destructive nature of the universe, as if in reference to the god Shiva, who has the drum of creation in one hand and the fire of destruction in the other. Hindu mythology is central to the poem. The Vision of the Sower and the Seed Three days and nights the pilgrim climbed. He broke down many times. As tears did flow, his mind unhinged. But truth began to find. The first night in the mountain sky, creation's song he heard. The source of all to him appeared. He then did hear these words. There is a sower and the seed that's cast both far and wide. Some of it has grown full strong and some of it has died. The field is rich and dark and deep. It rolls forever on. Each season is a cosmic breath. Each flower a blazing sun. In beginning is the light. The Logos it is named, and all the life of all the earths within it is contained. And then the seed is spirit, with matter subtly mixed. No man for all his wisdom can tell how it is fixed. Mankind is led by knowledge. There's always more to know. The universe beyond your lens forever seems to grow. Within yourself, a spirit lives. It comes from far above. Not only by intelligence, it must be known by love. And light combines with darkness, as moon doth live with sun. A marriage true that will not end, for life and death are one. Within the seed, destruction lies. Each life has but one span and so it seeks to reproduce, in woman and in man. The universe beyond you, above your petty fate, forever in renewal, it's not early, it's not late. It is eternal present, the future and the past, all within a moment, it's neither slow nor fast. The light within creation lies deep within your soul. It yearns for recognition. It labours for its goal. Patiently it works within while generations rest. 
as stirring seeds beneath the soil, a pilgrim on the quest. A million, billion, trillion times, the square of billions more is but a minute fraction of the world's, the cosmos stores. As droplets in the ocean and sands along its shore, you live within the infinite, but you are at its core. The universe in Hindu thought has cycles like a breath. Expansion is evolving life. Contraction is a death. There is, throughout the ages, no beginning and no end. Creation to destruction's wed. Upon this wheel you're bound. Intelligence is spread across the cosmos far and through. It is its very fabric, its all things and its you. So, still the mind, let wisdom speak. It lies within you all, to be at one within yourselves, and hear creation's call.